This is what the Lord says. Stand at the crossroads and look. Ask for the ancient paths. Ask where the good way is and walk in it, and you will find rest for your souls. Hello, friends. Welcome back. Today I'll be talking about our attitude towards the Lord. What should our attitude be? What does the scripture say about our attitude towards the Lord as opposed to what we often hear, teachings about his attitude towards us? But before I get into that topic, I'd like to mention something that just crossed my desk. Uh, Just very briefly, one of my listeners wrote, I want to thank you for bringing Jeremiah 6.16 to my attention. I call it the restful soul highway verse. (laughs) I like it. I'm really, really glad that some of the things that I share are encouraging to people, and I say amen to this being the restful soul highway verse. Stand at the crossroads and look. Once God has revealed what that good way is, let's walk in it, and we'll have rest for our souls. Amen. Well, as I get into a discussion about our attitude, what the Scripture says about our attitude towards the Lord, I want to start with misquoting Scripture. I'll read from the book of Matthew what Jesus said just before he ascended into heaven. We know it as the Great Commission, and I'll misquote it, and then I'll tell you what I said wrong. Jesus said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them everything that I have commanded you. And surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. Now, some of you have heard me do this before, so you know what I left out. Everything's right except for just a verb, actually, that I left out. He says, all authority in heaven on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them not everything I've commanded you. The Lord said, teach them to obey everything that I've commanded you. It's not enough for us to know the will of God. We have to do it. And our role as followers of Jesus is to make disciples, and those are people who do what God says. And in the Greek, this word that is here translated as obey can also be translated as to keep or to hold or to watch over. And the Lord is saying, teach people to hold tightly to what I've commanded you. It's a good translation to say obedience, to do it, to put it into practice. That's the context for my discussion about our attitude. What is the Lord asking our attitude to be? It's not enough for us to know what he says. We really need to put it into practice. At our church recently, over the past few weeks, we had sermons about suffering and humility. And it's really good to talk about mature subjects. And it's very good to see things as the Lord sees them not the way we want to see them or prefer to see them. So teachings about suffering and humility are good. They're very good. What is God's perspective on suffering? And I've done some podcast episodes about that. What is God's perspective on humility? He opposes the proud 
he gives grace to the humble. And after the second of those sermons, after two weeks of suffering and humility, talking about those things, my daughter said that there are so many messages about how God loves you that it was good to hear a sermon on humility. And that's been my experience. There is, there's just a lot of teaching in churches and on the internet about God's love for us. It's like that becomes a priority message, as if we need to be constantly told that. Well, of course, God loves us. It's all through the Old and the New Testaments. God loves his people. And I'll just give a few examples here from the Old Testament. There is a problem or a concern where we can tend to think that the God of the Old Testament is very different from the God of the New Testament. That's a heresy, because the God of the Old Testament is a God of love. People may think that he was a God of vengeance and fire, but in Isaiah chapter 43, the Lord says to the nation of Israel, Since you are precious and honored in my sight, and because I love you, I will give men in exchange for you, and people in exchange for your life. Do not be afraid, for I am with you. Well, one might think that that's a message from the New Testament. In Deuteronomy chapter 7, we read, The Lord did not set his affection on you and choose you because you were more numerous than other peoples, for you were the fewest of all peoples. But it was because the Lord loved you and kept the oath that he swore to your forefathers that he brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from that land of slavery, from the power of the Pharaoh king of Egypt. Know therefore that the Lord your God is God. He is the faithful God, keeping his covenant of love to a thousand generations of those who love him and keep his commandments. Amen. There we see in Isaiah chapter 43, and also in Deuteronomy chapter 7, that God sets his affection on his people. He loves his people. Of course he does. And in the New Testament, Jesus says, As I have loved you, so you must love one another. God loves his people. Scripturally, I would say that he loves his people, but not because we are lovable. Not because we're sweet and perfect and cuddly and kind. In John chapter 3, which many people will refer to as a discussion or an example of the love of God, that God loved the world, it doesn't really say what we tend to think it says. I talked about John 3.16 back in episode 10, a closer look at what the Lord is really saying in John 3.16. And there... He says that God loved the world. And in the scripture, when the Bible talks about the world, the world is always a rotten, dead, sinful place that needs redeeming. The world and its ways are contrary to God. The scripture says that while we were yet sinners, God showed his love for us. And I've mentioned it before, and I'll say it again here too, there is a word that is lacking from the book of Acts, and that word is love. Check me up on it. The word love is not in the book of Acts. When the church is being born, when people are entering into the kingdom as disciples are being made, there's just no mention of love there. 
And I believe that one thing we can take away from this knowledge is that this focus on the love of God is not as great in the scriptures as it is now in contemporary society. So we need to see things from God's perspective and adjust our views according to what he's revealed in the word. God loves us, not because we're lovable. As a matter of fact, when we were sinners, that's when he showed his love. When we deserve condemnation, he brings salvation. God loves us because he is love. So we need to look to the scriptures so that we'll have a correct response, a correct attitude to the Lord and what he does in our lives. One response to the fact that he does love us and does wonderful things for us, one response could be to say, well, I'm lovable. I'm a wonderful person. God loves me just the way I am. He loves me unconditionally, and God wants me to be happy all the time. Well, that could be one response, but I don't think that's a scriptural response of our attitude towards the Lord, towards the truth of his love and his care for us, his mercy and his grace. And the idea that God loves people unconditionally is not in the Bible. I don't think it ever says anywhere that God loves people unconditionally. That can lead people to think that they don't need to change in order to be pleasing to God. Oh, if he loves me unconditionally, that means there's no conditions to me being in his love, being loved by him. I don't have to change. He loves me just the way I am. He does love us, but he expects change. He demands change. The very first step in coming to God is to change, to repent. That's what repentance means. It's to turn, to have a new mind, a new perspective, to leave things behind and move on and change our focus. We must change if we're to enter into a loving relationship with God. Well, given all this, what should our attitude be? How does the scripture talk about us relating to God? What is our attitude towards him? First, we'll look in Ezekiel chapter 36, and this is just before a statement about the coming new covenant. We can also read about the New Covenant in Jeremiah chapter 31. And I did a series of episodes on the covenants, starting in episode 47. That's episodes 47, 48, 49, and 50. There's a look at the covenants. And so I talk a lot more there about Jeremiah 31 and Ezekiel 36. Now, just before the Lord makes a statement about the coming New Covenant, the Lord says why he is going to bring this New Covenant starting in verse 21 of Ezekiel 36. I had concern for my holy name, which the house of Israel profaned among the nations where they had gone. Well, there you go. This is why he's doing it. He had a concern for his name, for his name. The nation of Israel had not been glorifying God in the way that they acted among the nations. Verse 22. Therefore, say to the house of Israel, this is what the sovereign Lord says. It is not for your sake, O house of Israel, that I am going to do these things, but for the sake of my holy name, which you have profaned among the nations where you have gone. I will show the holiness of my great name, which has been profaned among the nations, the name you have profaned among them. Then the nations will know that I am the Lord, declares the sovereign Lord, when I show myself holy through you before their eyes. 
this is why the Lord is going to bring this new covenant. It's very interesting. He said, it's not for your sake that I'm going to do it, but for the sake of my name. Well, let's read on a little bit just so we can see what he promises that he will do. And listen as I read for the things that he promises that he will do. Starting in verse 24. For I will take you out of the nations. I will gather you from the countries and bring you back to your own land. I will sprinkle clean water on you and you will be clean. I will cleanse you from all your impurities and from all your idols. I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit in you. I will remove from you your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit in you and move you to follow my decrees and be careful to keep my laws. So there in just a few verses are, I think, seven times where the Lord says, this is what I will do. I will do this. And why? Well, his name is more important than our comfort. The name of the Lord is more important than our fame. (laughs) The name of the Lord is more important than our self-esteem. The name of the Lord is more important than our feelings of usefulness or purpose. And why is that? Because people are saved by faith in him, not by faith in us. He is going to do these good works in us so that the nations will see that he really is the Lord. Jesus said it. He said, people will know that you're my disciples by the way you love one another. People will look at you and they'll know that I am the Lord. So our attitude should be, he's not doing all these good things for me, but for the sake of his name. Now let's look at Luke chapter 17. Uh, Starting in verse 5, the apostles said to the Lord, increase our faith. And this is a a prayer that is often prayed. Lord, give me more faith, or uh, it can be sermons about it. We need to have a great faith, a big faith. And here's how the Lord replied to their request to him to increase their faith. He replied, verse 6, if you have faith as small as a mustard seed, You can say to this mulberry tree, be uprooted and planted in the sea, and it will obey you. (laughs) They're saying, give us more faith. And he's saying, no, I'm not going to give you more faith. You don't need more faith. All you need is faith as small as a mustard seed. And uh, I've seen mustard seeds, and they're tiny. They're like little tiny seeds. And if we have that pure faith, even a little bit of it, We could say to a tree, you get ripped out of the ground and you get thrown into the river, and it'll do it. Well, what kind of faith is that? It's a complete unity with the will of the Father to know his will perfectly. And if it is his will for a mulberry tree to be uprooted and planted in the sea, then that's going to happen. It's not our authority and our power that we call on when we live by faith. It's his authority and his power. And if we have faith as small as a mustard seed, boy, anything's possible. Jesus immediately follows up this discussion, this answer to this question, with a story about what our attitude should be. Immediately after telling them that if they have just a little faith, amazing things can happen. 
He says, suppose one of you had a servant plowing or looking after the sheep. Would he say to the servant when he comes in from the field, come along now, sit down and eat? Would he rather not say, prepare my supper, get yourself ready and wait on me while I eat, and after that you may eat or drink? Would he thank the servant because he did what he was told to do? So you also, when you have done everything that you were told to do, should say, we are unworthy servants. We have only done our duty. That's what Jesus says immediately after talking about amazing faith. He ties in this faith as small as a mustard seed with just being told what to do by the Lord. Would we expect God to say, yeah, that was wonderful, man, you're amazing. It's like, no, our response should be, we're unworthy servants. We've only done our duty. Spiritual pride is always crouching at the door. Years ago, I did a long fast, and I learned all kinds of amazing lessons and spiritual insights. And I found out that some other guys at another church had gone through a long fast also, right about that same time. So I asked one of them, what did you learn? What were the lessons that you learned as you did your fast? And the answer was, well, we learned that spiritual pride is always crouching at the door. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. If the Lord leads you to do a fast and you learn amazing things, be very careful that you don't give in to pride, spiritual pride. You say, I'm an unworthy servant. I've only done my duty. There is a missionary pride that can happen. People can be very proud of themselves after a mission trip. We're called off to some other place outside of our home culture. It may be in our home country, but outside of our culture, God does amazing things, and we can begin to get proud about it. But we should not be proud after an intense time of ministry or spiritual activity. We've only done our duty. We're unworthy. It's his power. We're not worthy of it. In John chapter 15, I do want to bring this up, the Lord says, I no longer call you servants because a servant doesn't know his master's business. Instead, I call you friends. For everything that I learned from my Father, I've made known to you. Amen. We're now friends of the Lord. And we can say we are friends of Jesus, and we've only done our duty. We're unworthy friends. He called us. He chose us. We didn't choose him. And as a result of looking at Luke 17, what should our attitude be? Well, my attitude should be, I'm not looking for fame or attention I've only done my duty. Amen. Ezekiel 36, he's not doing all these great things for me, but for the sake of his name. And I'm not looking for fame or attention. I've only done my duty. Now looking at Philippians chapter 2, this will be familiar to most of you, I think. Starting in verse 3, Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, but in humility consider others better than yourselves. Each of you should look not only to your own interests, but also to the interests of others. Now following in verses 5 through 11, there's a poem. Paul is writing in poetic language. And I've read several places people say that this perhaps was one of the early hymns of the church. That this would have been familiar to members of churches. And boy, I would love to see somebody 
turn this section into a contemporary worship song because it would be great to sing this in church. And it starts in verse 5 with, Your attitude should be. (laughs) Well, that's the topic of the conversation today. What should our attitude be? And here it says, Your attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus. That's verse 5. Starting in verse 6, we look at some of the things that exemplify his attitude, and ours should be the same. Verse 6, Jesus, being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but he made himself nothing, taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself, and he became obedient to death, even death on a cross. And therefore God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is the Lord to the glory of God the Father. Man, what a great worship song that would be. Your attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus. Amen. Well, let's consider some of the things that Paul says our attitude should be when we are like Jesus. Jesus never asks us to do anything that he hasn't done himself. He knows everything about suffering. He knows what it is to be abandoned by your friends, to be mocked by people that should respect you. Uh, He knows what it is to go through things, and our attitude should be like him. Even though he was God, he did not consider his equality with God something to hang on to, to grasp. We shouldn't seek to be greater, to have God-like powers. Our attitude should be like that of Jesus, that we let go of this desire to dominate or to be the most powerful or whatever. And Paul says that he made himself nothing. I've done this teaching quite often. I'll mention it here again. What is the word in your culture for a doormat? Most of you English speakers might use that name, doormat. I know in most cultures I go to, there's a name for that little piece of fabric that's by the door where you wipe your feet. Every culture's got something like that, it seems like. In English, in America, we can say, somebody treated me like a doormat. This person treated me like a doormat, meaning they just treated me like the dirtiest. They just wiped their feet on me. A doormat is something. And Jesus became nothing. Jesus became less than a doormat. And our attitude should be the same. We shouldn't seek to have godlike powers or to be powerful or dominate others. We should choose to become less than a doormat. It also says the Lord chose to become a servant. And one test of your desire to be a servant is how do you respond when someone treats you like a servant? Amen. that's an issue for me. A lot of times I was the only guy with a car in the ministry when we started here in Russia. Nobody had a car. I had the car. So I ended up being a driver for other people. And it chafed against my pride. Hey, don't you know that I'm directing this organization, and who are you to tell me that I need to drive here and go there and pick this up and take that? (laughs) It really hurt my pride. Amen. So I had had to humble myself and say, okay, I'll just be a servant. I'll be a driver. That's okay. This scripture also says that Jesus obeyed, and so our attitude should be the same. 
to obey. And that he chose humility. He humbled himself. He did it himself. He chose it. So our attitude should be like him. We can pray this prayer. Lord, help me become nothing. Lord, help me be humble. Lord, help me be a true servant. Lord, help me be obedient. Well, now let's look at something that Peter wrote in 1 Peter chapter 3. And before we get to what he actually wrote, I want to talk about Peter a little bit, because it's pretty remarkable what he wrote given his history. This is Peter who refused to suffer for Jesus on the night that Jesus was betrayed. If you remember this story, Peter had followed Jesus to the house of the high priest where Jesus was being confronted by his accusers. And houses in those days, and there are some houses actually around here that have the same building structure, they had a courtyard. So the house was basically a square with a gate or some kind of an entrance that went through the house into an inner courtyard. And then the courtyard is surrounded by the house. And Peter has followed into the courtyard, but not into the house. It may seem confusing, but he's, he's actually outside, but he's within the confines or surrounded by the building where Jesus is. Now, Peter is by a fire in the courtyard. It's very close to where Jesus is. Jesus is maybe just a few feet away inside a building, within sight of Peter. And remember the Lord had said to Peter, after Peter said, Lord, I'll die with you, and And the Lord said to Peter, well, you're going to deny me three times before the rooster crows. And sure enough, that's what happened. And in Luke 22, Peter says to the third person who's confronted him, says, man, I don't know what you're talking about. When they said to Peter that you are a Galilean, Peter was from up north from Galilee and he had an accent. And so people could hear that he was not from there and that he was a Galilean as Jesus had come down from the north too. And just as Peter denied the third time, the rooster crowed. And it says that the Lord turned and looked straight at Peter. They're within sight of each other. So Jesus is there talking to the high priest and all the other religious leaders, and he's either by a window or by an open doorway. And the rooster crows, and Jesus looks over at Peter, looks right at him. And then Peter remembered what the Lord had said to him. And then Peter went outside and he wept bitterly. Well, a few weeks later, Peter is sitting by another fire. I think there are only two fires that are mentioned in the New Testament. One of them is in this courtyard when he denies knowing Jesus. And the second fire is by a lake. (laughs) Peter is again by the fire having fish for breakfast by the water. And he's sitting with the resurrected Jesus. And here he is at a fire again. And this is when Jesus calls Peter into ministry. This is when Jesus calls Peter to care for the Lord's flock. So this is Peter, who would not suffer for Jesus. But now Peter has met the risen Lord. And now Peter has received the Spirit on Pentecost. And this is Peter who now writes in verse 17, It is better if it is God's will to suffer for doing good than for doing evil. For Christ died for sins once for all, the righteous for the unrighteous, to bring you to God. He was put to death in the body, but made alive by the Spirit. 
Amen. Boy, Peter really went through it. He learned so much. And here we see again that Christ didn't die for the righteous. He died for the unrighteous. That's us. That's all of us. And Peter said, it's better, if it's God's will, to suffer for doing good than for doing evil. Skipping down a few verses. And therefore, since Christ suffered in his body, arm yourselves also with the same attitude, because he who has suffered in his body is done with sin. As a result, he does not live the rest of his earthly life for human desires, but rather for the will of God. That's wonderful. Peter really learned an excellent lesson, and it hurt. It hurt him to learn it. But now he's a man full of boldness and faith, and he said it's good, if it is God's will, to suffer for doing what is right. And Jesus himself suffered for the sake of other people, and he suffered in his body. He physically suffered, and that we should have that same attitude. Because when we physically go through hard times, when we suffer, it drives out sin. If we're suffering according to the will of God and because we've done well. So our attitude should be, it is honorable and right to suffer for doing good. Suffering is one way the Lord will purify me from sin and help me to live for the will of God. Looking in Luke chapter 22, let's read here, starting in verse 39. Jesus went out, as usual, to the Mount of Olives, and his disciples followed him. On reaching the place, he said to them, Pray that you will not fall into temptation. He withdrew about a stone's throw beyond them, knelt down, and prayed, Father, if you are willing, take this cup from me, yet not my will but yours be done. An angel from heaven appeared to him and strengthened him. And being in anguish, he prayed more earnestly, and his sweat was like drops of blood falling to the ground. When he arose from prayer and he went back to the disciples, he found them asleep, exhausted from sorrow. Why are you sleeping? he asked them. Get up and pray that you will not fall into temptation. This is where the Lord fully surrenders, knowing that he is going to take on himself the payment for the sins of all of the world. On himself he will bear this burden, this punishment for all of the sins. Years ago I was in Poland at the Nazi death camp Auschwitz. I was there with a couple of interns with our ministry, and we were walking in the place where hundreds of thousands of people were killed because they were Jewish And as we were there looking at it, very sober and somber, one of the interns said, Jesus paid for this. And I hadn't thought about it until that moment that Jesus took on himself the payment for the sins of the Nazis. Jesus bore that so that if any Nazi would repent and turn to him, that price had been paid. And that that Nazi could receive forgiveness and mercy. But here is Jesus realizing that this is what's coming. And he asked the Father, he said, if you're willing, you can take this cup from me. Please take it from me. And here's the prayer. Yet not my will be done, but yours be done. 
Well, what can we take from this? First of all, let us pray that we will not fall into temptation. That's part of the Lord's Prayer. Lord, lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. God, guide us away from temptation. And we can have the same attitude as that of Jesus, who says, Not my will, but yours be done. And this is the source of great spiritual strength. It is always possible to do the will of God because he promises to give us the strength by his Spirit. Just as we read in Ezekiel, he promises to give us his Spirit, to move in us. Amen? This spiritual strength comes from this surrender of self to the will of God. It's always possible to do the will of God if we will die to ourselves and live for Him. And so, my friends, our attitude should be, not my will, but yours be done. Amen. Jesus said to His disciples, Now that you know these things, you will be blessed if you do them. Thank you for listening, and God bless you all. Thank you.